go to your word this morning, we ask that you would open our hearts through your Holy Spirit, open our minds, and, and uh, just uh, cause us to be able to draw close to you, close together as we share. And uh, Lord, we just thank you so much that we have your word to lead us and to guide us and to direct us. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Taking a detour this morning, uh, just uh, and you, you kind of see how it comes together, I hope, in a few minutes. But I'm going to Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. And I'm telling you in advance that I am borrowing a a bit of format from John Piper. I don't know how familiar you are with John Piper and his ministry, uh, uh, but he's uh, uh, done a message on this particular passage that uh, turns out to be right where our leadership feels we are. And uh, this was something that was brought to our attention that he had preached on back in 2011. And so uh, I'd like to, to use, min- I'm going to use much of what he has shared in addition to uh, some of the things that will make an application to our congregation here this morning. Uh, so first off, just looking at the first three verses of Acts chapter 13. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers and Barnabas, Simon, who was called Niger, and Lucius of uh, Cyrene, and Manan, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Now what, in these few verses, something that's really quite brief it's almost easy to miss here, but it's really, I think, a very important passage for us. First off, uh, it's telling us that the leadership of, of Antioch were gathered together uh, for prayer. And just a quick look at, at, at Antioch. I don't know how familiar you are with the, them, but if you went back to chapter 11 and uh, picked it up at the 19th verse just to get a little bit of, of, of flavor for this. Uh, now, those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over, Stephen's, uh, over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. Now, what, you're, what he's talking about here is the... Murder, the execution of, of, of Stephen, uh, and back in Acts chapter 7, and uh, after he was arrested, you know, his whole testimony through Acts chapter 6 and what happened in chapter 7. And uh, we even see Saul uh, as a part of the action that was going on there. Uh, the church was scattered. And in that scattering, they went all over. And here we find them that they're in Antioch. But the focus was speaking the word primarily to the Jews, going to the synagogues. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Now, the Hellenists were the Greeks, they were the non-Jews. And uh, the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Where he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man. Barnabas' name in itself is the idea of an encourager. 
He was full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him back, brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. By the way, the implication is, is that they weren't first called Christians by them, uh, of themselves, but the community around them started to relate to them as those who have been with Christ, Christians, or those who are following after Christ, Christians. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. The reason why I wanted to go through that passage was just to, that you would see how important Barnabas and Saul were to Antioch. Uh, together, after teaching over a year, they were building a great congregation. And actually, interestingly, a, a congregation that was inclusive of Gentiles as well as Jews. And, and so there's great things happening. And then a while later, we find them in chapter 13 here, the leadership meeting together. And they... Uh, or as they're, as they're meeting together, that says that they were worshiping the Lord and fasting. And I want to stop there for just a minute because they met for this purpose, to worship and to fast. And the word worshiping here, normally we think of worshiping as singing some songs together, but the term worship is very broad in the sense of all that it might include, including the way we share in our offering is an act of worship. Uh, communion is an act of worship. Singing our songs, an act, sharing in the Word of God, all of that is an act of worship. But in this particular word, uh, in fact, in the King James Version, it's, it's translated ministered. Uh, it says, as they ministered to the Lord. Interesting phrase. And what it means is, is that they were in the ministry of prayer the ministry of supplication, the ministry of, uh, of thanksgiving. This is what this word normally implied or dealt with. And so we actually get the word, and I'm not going to go into the Greek word and, and say it all and that type of thing, but we get the word liturgy, which is the way we do worship. <laughs> we get the word liturgy from this, this word that is translated worship in the uh, uh, English Standard Version, uh, ministered in the King James Version. And the idea was that they were coming to the Lord in prayer and supplication and thanksgiving. Well, you think about all that they had to be thankful for, what God was doing in the church in Antioch, uh, but also prayer of supplication in the sense of looking for God's guidance, direction. The Holy Spirit speaks to them. And, and gives them uh, a message, whether it was through one uh, a prophetic message there or, or whether it was just something that, the, that they all sensed together. But it says very clearly that the Holy Spirit was leading them to set uh, Saul and Barnabas apart or aside for the work I've called them for, he says. And I thought as I read that, that was a real tough situation for them at that point. I know, I've just been through it a little bit. Uh, I was, 
you know, at the point where I was thinking that uh, it looked like Levi would be leaving. And uh, Levi has been very instrumental to the <laughs> play on words, I guess. Uh, very instrumental to this congregation. He's been a, a tremendous blessing. And yet we had to, to realize we came to the point, this isn't our work, this is God's work. If God calls Levi away, he will cover us. But it still sat in the back of my head as, ouch, I'm going to miss him if he moves. I'm going to miss him terribly. I become really dependent on his work and his ministry and, quite candidly, his teaching and, and other aspects of his abilities. And, uh, and so I'm thinking, this must have been the way they were feeling as, as God is saying, I'm, I'm sending uh, Barnabas and, 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 and Saul away from you. I'm going to send them out. And I'm thinking, ouch, on their behalf, uh, leaving a big hole in, in, in their ministry there. But with the confidence that God would supply it, I'm sure. Yet, why, as they were going through this, was there an indication prior to this that God was going to be doing something great? John Piper seemed to think that that they were already aware that God was preparing to do something from the Antioch church in a bigger way outside of their area. And that as they were coming together for fasting and prayer, that they were asking God to give us direction, to give us the next step, what is going to happen next. And he ends up calling this, and I thought it was an interesting phrase, he called it an Antioch moment. And it's a phrase that is really stuck in my head, Antioch moment. And he was going on to comment that the church, uh, the Bethlehem church where, uh, where he was, is, was preaching uh, was, was having an Antioch moment, needing to get vision and direction for the next steps that God would have them take in their ministries. In other words, they really couldn't see, okay, we, we've got a, a statement of faith, we've, we've got a, a, a purpose statement, we've got all those things, but we can't see what it is that God is going to do next. Have you ever felt that way in your own life? <laughs> Raise your hand, right? I mean, no, don't do it. I just, uh, the, the idea of, of, of I'm, and I'm terrible with that. I don't know about you, but I'm not a great planner. Most of you are keenly aware of that. But uh, I am, at the same point, I don't like to have big question marks hanging out here. But I have to tell you, the majority of my walk as a Christian have had mostly big question marks out here and, 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 and very suddenly God speaking and, and having to make very, uh, for lack of better words, immediate decisions that impact lots and lots of people. Uh, I've shared some of them with you before. But, uh, you know, you can have, I guess what I'm trying to say is you can have Antioch, personal Antioch moment, moments as well, where you're realizing this is going to change everything. When my mom took ill, uh, was uh, unable to come up here to live, and no one to take care of her. It uh, doesn't mean I don't have other siblings, but for whatever reason, it, it, it was, you know, and I was telling God no. I, I didn't think that was my response. She was actually my stepmom. I even used that ploy. And uh, the, uh, you know, I said, I, everything's committed to ministry here, Lord. I, 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 we've got a, uh, and at this point, we had a building program in the church that I was in and, and all these things going on. And I said, Lord, I just can't see how I can leave right now. 
And the word that came to me, and I've shared this with you before, was the word Corban. Those of you who are familiar with it, it's where the Lord was, Jesus was speaking to the Pharisees, talking about how they had set all their money aside for ministry. In other words, uh, it's all committed to, to serving God. And, and they called the word was Corban that, that was implied. Our money or our resources are cor- set in Corban or Corban, and the end result is we can't take care of our parents. And God says, your tradition, Corban's not a biblical thing. Your tradition and your commitment over here is completely out of line. The first and foremost thing is to take care of your parents. In fact, that is a commandment, to honor your parents. And Jesus let them have it. And so there I am, uh, January, the, 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 the third week of, uh, of January, and I'm, I'm hearing... God saying that, no, you can't, you can't use that. You're going to have to go down and check things out. Went down on, on, on a three-day weekend at, uh, in January. Um, found my mom uh, almost unable to take care of herself. And we were fully moved down there by March 3rd. Lock, stock, and barrel. And... Uh, it did radically change the ministry that, that I was involved in. Uh, different facets of that ministry changed because it was hinged on my involvement. I wasn't the senior pastor, but uh, still in that context, things changed. And so you can have these moments at any, any time where God speaks and causes you to say, this is what needs to happen next. So there's two sides to this. There's the side where you think you've got it all figured out and God intervenes and says, no, do this. And then there's times where you're seeking the face of God to know what to do next. In this case, this is where the, the church in Antioch was and the, and the church, uh, John Piper's congregation, was experiencing, in a sense, that same feeling. Uh, John Piper wrote the, these things about it. He says, I get the term Antioch moment from Acts chapter 13 where the leaders of the church in Antioch have gathered to fast and pray and worship evidently in the hope that God would speak and give clear guidance to the church in Antioch. The church in Antioch was at, uh, was at a point in their history where they needed a word from God about the next crucial step. I doubt that they realized that the Holy Spirit would say and how monumental that step would be. But we will come back to that in a moment when we focus on the text. But first let me explain what I mean by Bethlehem's Antioch moment. And he goes on to talk about a few things and then he had a list. And he says, and now uh, we are at... at he, and he talk, kind of talked about his the church history and a few other times that they had been at this point. And now he's saying, "Here's where we are. How long and 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 should how long can and should John Piper be the lead pastor for preaching and vision? And how should that succession come about? Should treasuring Christ together, which was a particular ministry, with its vision of multiplying campuses, planting churches, and the global di- uh, di- diaconate?" be replaced with a vision of three separate churches, revised but still one church on multiple campuses, or be given renewed energy to focus just as it is now. In other words, what do we do with this particular ministry? And then he talked about the the indebtedness they had and, and how to retire that. And all of them were unknowns as to what to do next. Uh, so... That's you know where, where John Piper was coming from and saying we can all have this kind of an experience as a congregation or a church, a moment where we are coming together with the idea of saying, 
Okay, God, what's next? Lord, what do you want us to do now? By the way, the picture here in, in Acts chapter 13, verse 3, after fasting and prayer and the laying on of, of hands, uh, they, were, they were sent. Okay? Uh, Barnabas and, 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 and uh, Paul were sent off. And the idea of laying on of hands here was the reality that they were uh, they weren't calling them to elevate uh, them, calling them apostles or anything at this point, but laying on their hands is a sense of sending them out and recognizing. And the idea of laying on of hands is, is agreeing that God has called someone to do something. For instance, when we have when we have our elders, we we are looking for men who are already serving God and and, and working in that capacity. And, and aspire, Scripture makes it kind of clear, to aspire to be elders and, and, and bringing them into a training program. And the idea is, is, is to, at some point, have a time where we as a congregation, through the leadership, will lay hands on them. The idea of, of setting them apart for the purpose of leading in the congregation. Or we might lay hands uh, when uh, uh, we had... Uh, Kim Thurston one time going out on a mission effort with her school. We, we came together. We laid hands on her to send her. And what we were saying in the idea of laying hands there was also that we're committed to seeing you through on this. Where we can, we'll support you. We'll continue to pray for you. We'll be available to you for, for, for help and counsel, this type of thing. So the laying on of hands was the idea of committing and standing with these men as they were going to leave. Um, again, uh, looking to uh, uh, see that, that, that the church was going to be taking a whole new step, a rather radical change. Now, keep that in mind for a moment as I uh, kind of take a sidetrack here for a moment. Most of you here know uh, that we've been going through our bylaws and re writing them over the last well, a couple, three years now, really. And uh, quite candidly, I didn't really have any idea of really what a, uh, imp- two things, what a task it would be and how important it is. But we have here finished, I guess we'll still call it a draft, finished drafts uh, of, of everything that, that we've put together uh, as in the way of, of, of bylaws and and we would like you uh, just so that you know we'll pick up one per family uh, today if you can uh, and I'll go over a little bit more of that in a little while but that's that's here and so we've been going over these bylaws let me give you a kind of a history about this a number of years ago uh, at a at a leadership conference uh, there was a Christian law group that was talking about taxes and, and church law. This was something going on in Sacramento I had been invited to go to. and You know, there was a lot of technical stuff going on, and I'm almost embarrassed to say it this way, but my response was, <sighs> you, know, I, I, you, know, our, you know, we had our bylaws in place. Everything seemed fine. Uh, and I hadn't ever thought about it, but, you know, we hardly ever looked at the bylaws. The, the bylaws that we had was a template that was put together uh, as a church plant uh, and it was rather rapidly done. 
in order for us to be able to move out from an umbrella of a church that was going to collapse. And so we, we moved very quickly to, to protect our resources that, that that church had in its bank. We didn't want to see it all gone. So we moved, and, and, and we just we, we got it taken care of and took care of business, and we just went on with, with, with church, if you will. And uh, so... I, I, I kind of, you know, just in the back of my head, yeah, ta- churches and taxes and church bylaws and stuff like that. And it was a, a seminar on how to, to do a lot of that. And shortly after that, I had my first encounter with the IRS as, as a pastor and, one, and, and the IRS wanting to see my tax returns. And, uh, well, not seeing. They had them. They want me to explain them. And... Uh, and, and and saying that I owed them money, and I said, how could that be? I you know I just, I, I didn't see where I had made enough money to owe them money, uh, but anyway they were insistent, and so I, I we talked to it, we worked it out, and they realized, oh okay, we see you filed this form in 1981 in reference to Social Security, therefore you're exempt on a church basis. Okay, everything's okay. Never mind, you don't owe us anything. Took a couple of weeks to get through that. I don't know about you, but they, those guys, they can be very intimidating. They, they talk really, you know, liens and, you know, you know putting a, a liens on your house and holds on your checking account and stuff and, and wanting me to pay them now. And if, I, and if everything works my favor, then they'll pay me back. I don't know how long it takes the government to do those things. I wasn't about to give them any money. And... Uh, but I felt like I've been to, I, I beat City Hall. <laughs> That's the, kind of the way I felt. Okay, and then two years later, well, uh, 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 a few years later, anyway, at, at my, probably I think maybe my first Shepherds Conference in Southern California, uh, another Christian law seminar in areas of concern. I didn't yawn this time. You know, I paid a little, or by the way, that happened four more times. They kept going back over years. and They never pull a year that just happened. They pull a year that's five years back or four years back or three years back, you know, so you've got to go find all your records. The fourth time, I have to share this with you, the fourth time it happened, I called my friend who was a tax attorney uh, in, in Southern California, a tax and, and estate planning attorney. And uh, at that conference that I had gone to where I yawned, I had signed a thing about not taxing churches. The, the government needs to stay out of taxing churches. And, and somebody had mentioned at that time, your name's going to go on a list. They'll catch this. Your name will be on a list. And so I shared that with Andy David, my attorney. And uh, he, he said, uh, he says, Bob, he says, I think they are uh, harassing you. That's where we're going with this. And he says, we're going to sue them. Because see, the fourth time they actually, before they, you know, just as they were contacting me, they put a lien on my house, they put a hold on my checking account, and they had a, st- a chunk of money that they owed me that they weren't sending. Plus, they wanted a bigger chunk of money back, and they said, "Again, pay us, we'll work it out." And then, and the penalties accruing and all this kind of. And so he gave me some numbers to call. He also gave me a, a statute number and civil law to use, and I, I called and I said. I just want to inform you, I am taking you to court. I'm suing you. And the first thing was, you can't do that. There's no provision. And I gave them the number, and they said, we'll get back to you. And they never get back to me. And I called another one and another. Finally, I ended up talking to somebody in Seattle. I don't know why Seattle, but that's who I ended up talking with. 
And he, I gave him that same information, and he said, okay, I'll be looking into that. Five days later, I had my check back from the IRS, everything removed, and I got interest on what they, they paid me. So, you know, uh, you can, you know, there's, there's a way. And again, it was kind of like, I beat C.D. Hall again, you know. But, but I realized this, this was, is it possible? Is it possible that, that the government is learning and, and taking an attitude that where they want to be able to tax the churches, be able to do different things with the churches that they're not able to do right now for more income, for more control, for various and sundry things. Over the last few years, we've been seeing more and more attempts to do that. And so when I heard this, uh, at, this next, uh, at the Shepherds Conference, I actually went and paid attention, and they were talking about changing attitudes of culture and government towards Christians and churches. And uh, I didn't know for sure what I needed to be doing other than it was just making me aware. The next Shepherds Conference, same Christian law group is there, with updates about what had been going on and, and, and advice to church leaders and church organizations of things that they needed to be doing. And the actual citing of cases... Uh, of concern for, with several churches and Christian schools who were being put under microscopes by various government agencies, and uh, including the IRS. And uh, they were making the comment that the, the public concern was taking you know, a very serious look at the way churches use their money. The, the, are churches violating anybody's civil rights? Uh, are the churches violating the rights of children? You, you, did you know that, that, that there's actually been some, some court cases about this? They haven't gone anywhere, fortunately. But just the fact that a court would hear them is irritating to me. Where someone says, well, the child is raised in a Christian home. He's going to a Christian school, and, and, and he goes to church. Those, and, his, and his personal activities are centered around church. has no opportunity to see the world for himself and therefore make personal decisions. And that is some form, and they were saying that is a form of child abuse. Okay, I think that's absurd, but the fact that a judge would hear a case is enough to make you concerned to realize at some point someone's going to try to make it bigger than that. And so I'm paying attention this time. This is a rather typical pattern for me, by the way. The Lord has to tell me something three times at least before I get it. I, I don't know whether that's a Peter principle in, in, in a scriptural context or what, but, but it seems to be the way it works for me. What they were saying very clearly, and, and I have to, to say this identified me quickly, using their words, but uh, words that come back, laissez-faire attitude of the 70s, 80s, and 90s is inadequate for the changing attitude of the federal government, state government, and secularists today. What they were talking about was the laissez-faire, the, 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 the Jesus movement out of the 70s. I'm part of that. That's when I got saved. Okay? And the idea was you walk into a church, you're, you know, you're a member because why? Because you're saved. By the way, that is true. I don't care where you go in a church if it's professing Jesus Christ and the Scriptures is God-breathed in the, in the Word of God, and you walk in, you are a saved member of the universal church. 
So the idea was to, to downplay membership, to downplay other aspects of church government, trying to, to just, you know, everybody's kind of easygoing, laid back, and, and working things out. And they said it's not going to work in, in, in the 2000s. It's, it's changing. And what they were recommending, and it's interesting, not only did we hear these recommendations from these law associations, but we also heard them from some of the, the Christian organizations that are, are insurance companies that are insuring churches. Because guess what? When, when churches get sued, who pays the bills? Okay, so they're interested in this too. And, and they said you need to build a defense before you are looked at. And you're thinking, what, what do you mean? Build a defense. Well, the idea was a declaration. Spelling out who you are in detail. And not only who you are, but what's your purpose? What, do you, what, you, you know, what is your statement of faith? And do your bylaws reflect that statement of faith in enough detail to defend you in a court of law? And what we were talking about is, is, is issues in concerning marriage, facility use. You realize, you know, there's a lot of churches, and I can think, I was just thinking of one the other day that's in this bind. They're, they're, a, they're a small congregation, uh, and, and they, they, they can't even afford to keep their, their building warm on, on, in the winter. You know, there, there's not enough offering to do that. And the end result is, is that they rent their building out to various groups. Well, one of the groups that they rent their, their organization out, their building out to is the uh, uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. Another group is, uh, is uh, some... Uh, can't remember what it was, a, a seniors group of some kind. But none of those groups subscribing to their statement of faith. What they have done, according to the, the law association, is they have set a pattern of renting their building to non-Christian groups. Therefore, if a homosexual group wants to come up and rent their building, they can't say no. Now, they're working at that. They haven't succeeded in making that happen. Can you see how that can happen based on where we are today? And so they're saying you need to spell out of your bylaws your church government, how your membership works. You know, what does your church believe about marriage and all these kinds of side issues in addition to. It used to be just this. All you had to say was you know, a, a brief, very concise uh, statement of faith that would say uh, we believe in God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We believe in the Word of God as the only inspired Word of God. And to its practices we subscribe. And, and the end result would be somebody who say, well, why did you do it that way? Well, because the Word tells us to. Where? Oh, that's a matter of interpretation. This church interprets that differently. What church? Oh, Glide Memorial in San Francisco. I don't know if you know where that church is, but that's a, a homosexual church. That's, okay? They're saying they don't interpret that the same way. Now, you don't say anywhere in your bylaws how you interpret that. Therefore, it's ambiguous for you to state that that you, you hold to that now. So we're having to build the defense ahead of time. Does that make sense to you? Okay, in the process, we're finding that our bylaws also need to be a working piece of paper. In other words, uh, flexible to the degree that as things change in the culture, we can change them too. In other words, they can't be absolutely set in concrete in the, and, and in the way that, uh, that uh, you, you might want them to be as the civil rights issues and, and, and child care issues and all sorts of other issues change. So 
the decoration, you know, of spelling out who you are in detail, your purpose, your statement of faith, your bylaws, your church government, membership, things like marriage and, and gender issues. We found that there were a number of support groups to go to, uh, both online and other places, to, to get help with this. Uh, and we were, you know, spending a lot of time working our way through it and wanted our bylaws to be a, a good policy manual also, not just a, uh, meeting the necessity of, 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 a, of a defense wall, if you will, but to be a good policy manual as to how we do you know, how we, we do church here. How we perform the ministry. What our purpose is. Right, this is where the purpose statement up here came from out of that process. So we have a, a, a document here that talks about membership. It has a statement of faith. And, and, it, and, and it talks about various and sundry issues of, of uh, having church about the church elders and how they, they, they are to govern and how they are selected, uh, how the facility can be used, uh, just a whole lot of, of different things in reference to who the church is. And like I said, we, we wrestled over a lot of time with this. And realizing, though, that we're, we're just as fallible as anybody else in the process of putting things together. Oversights, misstatements, other things that are easy to do. What we want you to do is to have a copy of this, go through it, and see if there's some areas that uh, raise an eyebrow of concern or uh, that you feel needs to be stated slightly differently or, uh, and, and maybe, or maybe something that's been missed or overstated, any of those kinds of things. Where you, uh, We want your feedback on this. I want to ask you a very specific favor in reference to that. You'd like it in writing. People get nervous when you do that. But the reason for it is, is that when we get together as, as in our leadership groups as we go through this, we want to be able to read it together and, see, and have the same information. In other words, if you tell me and then I tell someone else, the odds are I'm going to leave something out or overemphasize or underemphasize something. So writing helps, okay? And so we're asking you to do that. Uh, and as we finalize this, we're going to you know, put it back to an opportunity for you to look at a final document and, again, make sure that we've got it where we want it to be. We're also going to do something for you. If you're taking this now, we really ask you please to read it. Um, then to have a um, – we're going to have a question and answer uh, time. Um, what is it? August 30th. That's the day after our work day, August 29th, uh, and a, a nice plug. Okay, and and uh, just wanting to, uh, after the worship service, uh, have an interaction of, of questions and answers. If you have anything that you want to, to, to bring up at that point, you'll have the opportunity to do it that way as well. Um, so... I want you to, 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 to see that, but I, I want to add something else to this picture. Kind of a, a brief sidetrack, and part of it has to do with what John Piper was wrestling with, as well as, as, as where we are. And, and, as, and, and, and let me just uh, start this way. As we worked on our statement of faith, 
we realized there is a foundational core with Christ at its cornerstone. We're all keenly aware of that. What we're talking about is the Scripture. I mean, here this is an absolute to us. God breathed. It says so in Timothy. It says so in Peter. This is God breathed. That God used men through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to put this together. It actually uses the phrase, God breathed. It is the only God-breathed revelation of God. When, and Paul actually goes on in, in, in Galatians to say, I'm amazed that you guys, you've been looking at another gospel. In fact, it's not a gospel at all because it's not God-breathed. Only the gospel is God-breathed. Only, you know, and, and he says, I can't believe you guys are doing that. And he says, I want to make you understand this. If somebody comes along, I don't care if it's an angel, even if it's us, that comes along and says, oh, this isn't it anymore, ignore them, anathema, stay away from them, kick them away, get, you know, don't pay any attention to them, don't allow them to be there to speak. I mean, it was very clear because he used the word, they are anathema. You can't get any stronger than that. This is the God-read word. That's an important point in, with the statement of faith. The reality that, that, that there is a triune God, in, in God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in three persons, that the incarnation of, 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 of Christ, that He literally God in the flesh dwelt among us, He lived among us, and His death, His burial, His resurrection for the purposes of purchasing our salvation. That the reality that on the cross He said, it is finished. Meaning that salvation had been purchased. There isn't anything that we can bring to the table to add to that. And the exaltation of Christ is made clearer in the Word. The Word makes it clear that this was a plan in the mind of God before the foundation of the world. In the midst of this, looking at this, Some people ask occasionally, not as often as you might think, though, Bob, what do you believe? Well, I've just stated the foundation for you. Some here have known me for more than 30 years. It's a long time to be in one place, especially for someone who's moved almost 25 times in his life. I've been here two-thirds of my marriage. I've been here almost half my life. I was a nomad. <laughs> you know, and I, it's an amazing thing. I have to confess, I would not have chosen Fortuna. I am a warm, sunshine, heat boy. But I love where God has put me. And I've never had anything that's shown me that God's taking me anyplace else. In fact, I moved to go that one year that we took off to go to take care of my mom. I thought we were gone. And here we are. So it's, it's where God has put me. So some of you have heard me teach and preach the, the God-breathed words of Scripture. Others here are just possibly getting to know me. 
So some have heard what I'm going to share before, and, and uh, others, again, may be the first time you've heard it. I call my days before Christ in my life B.C. days. Pretty simple, before Christ. I had no interest or room for religion in my life. Wasn't interested. Uh, I put it pretty simply in my mind's eye was, if there is a heaven, I'm as good as anybody else. I stand the same chance as anybody else. By the way, that's a true statement. The sad part about it is, is that your, your chances are zero. <laughs> and, and I didn't understand that. People want to talk about Jesus, I get up literally and walk out. I just rude. I would intentionally be rude. Before we became, uh, before I became a Christian, I was married. I already had my first child. Kathy and I had our first child. Uh, we had many Christians in our extended families, but uh, no interest from us. There was no need for it. I won't go through the whole testimony, but I will put it just as simply as I can for the moment. August 15, 1976, around 6.15 in the morning, as I took a break in my shop, summertime hot in the Tascadero area, Spraying lacquer you don't do in heavy heat. I had a wood shop, cabinet shop. And so I was taking my break. Most people might have had a, you know, maybe eat breakfast or something. But I came in and turned on the TV for a few minutes and sat down and had a smoke, drank a beer. <laughs> Listened to the uh, uh, a Christian program. And I, I wanted to watch it because I wanted to mock the guy who was being the guest speaker, who was Pat Boone. And, I, and again, I'm not going to go into great detail, but by the time it was over, um, I was on my knees asking the Lord to forgive me and to let me into his kingdom by the blood of Christ. first church we attended was one who tracked its heritage to the Restoration Movement. I don't know that everybody in here knows what the Restoration Movement is, but it was also labeled the Second Great Awakening uh, during the early 1800s. Numbers of groups were involved in that. It's amazing intertwining of groups. It's interesting. I want you to hear this because I think it's interesting to know. In 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 the mid to late 1790s, the first Supreme Court justice appointed by George Washington, uh, his name was John Marshall, And he said, we are in serious trouble as a nation. And he went on to preach, if you will, almost a sermon. He said, the bars are full and the churches are empty. We're in trouble. And this was the East Coast. There wasn't much else other than the East Coast at this point for the the United States. That was it, yeah. And, uh, but there was a great migration going on into the Ohio Valley from from the, you know the top of, of, of the Ohio River all the way down into Louisiana and that area. And uh, that area was absolutely lawless. 
just, just uh, there, there one town's name was Rogue's Den. You know, I mean, <laughs> um, and uh, vigilantes came up now and then, but the vigilantes were losing. They were frequently, if they would start and try to get the law in order going, the next thing you know, there wouldn't be any vigilantes left. And uh, during that time, there was a great outpouring of, of the Holy Spirit and of the Lord. And it's hard to imagine, but in the Ohio Valley, uh, the biggest city was Lexington, Kentucky, maybe 1,500 people, and they would have as many as 25,000 people at revival meetings. Somebody preaching from a shot off a place where they cut off a tree, so he stood on a stump, and he would preach. Somebody would go in 24/7. Somebody would be preaching somewhere in the camp, stump preaching, <laughs> uh, camp meeting. All of that came from that time. There were Methodists, Presbyterians, Baptists. They were praying together, ministering together. And, and the idea of the Restoration Movement was to say, we have this great reformation that has opened up the door to separate us from the Catholic Church as Protestants who are to, able to rest in the grace of God. But, but we, 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 we need to take a look and, and, and return back to basics, if you will, to make sure, because we're, it's not working very well right now on the East Coast. What are we missing? And part of that movement uh, was the idea of, of independent churches led by elders who were locally autonomous, and, and it was quite a strong movement that came out of that. And so the first church I attended, was that was kind of where they tracked their history. And uh, I've, been that, I've, I've believed that context ever since. Elder-led, non-denominational uh, uh, independent churches that are self, uh, you know, are, are autonomous, meaning that they're governing themselves for their area in their area of, of ministry, in their land area of ministry. For us, the Eel River Valley and Fortuna. So I see myself as, as, as you could say, a restorationist. And, uh, but also looking at the Reformation the birth of Protestantism. You know, in 1517, Martin Luther goes and nails his 95 Theses on the door and, and, and the beginning of, 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 of a real strong movement to separate from the Catholic Church and have a group of people who are saying, hey, we're saved by grace and, and grace alone, not by works. And the Catholic Church was selling, what, at that point, indulgences. You could buy your way out of purgatory. You could buy somebody else who had died. It wasn't a very good liver... Uh, wasn't a very good person but and living their life for Christ, but you know they were Catholic, so they didn't go to hell. They went to purgatory, uh, some holding place in between, which is unbiblical. And, and the end result would be that you could, you could start shelling out money to get them out of purgatory and into heaven. Indulgences is what it's called. You could also prepare your own way. And uh, Martin Luther said, that, in the middle of doing penance himself, came to the conclusion, wait a minute, this isn't, this isn't it. And he pulled away, and of course, that's history. The you know the Protestant movement, uh, you know, so many other people at that, that, in that movement in that time, the Reformation movement. And uh, what they they started was an idea that, that that was, for lack of better words, almost novel at the time. It, now, not that there hadn't been any pastors trying to teach this, but they had been imprisoned, burned at the stake, uh, and various other things that had happened to them 
because they were preaching these same things. But now there was a movement of, of people uh, in putting this together. And that was one of the other things that, that, that I, was, I was brought into in the sense of understanding was what, what the history of the Protestant church was. The main thing I learned right away was uh, a belief, again, in the Bible as God's inspired word. God breathed in the same vein absolute sovereignty of God. God is sovereign in all things from beginning to end. He is eternal. Where it says God created, God breathed, God did whatever it says, it is the way it was. I was trying so hard to shuffle various things together, especially evolution and creation. I mean, all my, all my training and education uh, had been in secular schools. No church, no Sunday school, really. Uh, the only time I went to Sunday school was when my grandma took me or when we stayed with my, my aunts, and we went to this one church. And I have to tell you, the thing that I remember most about that church was if you sat by the window in the morning, the, the, the heater vent was on, and if nobody was paying any attention, you could drop uh, crayons into the heater vent and see smoke come up. It's not the only thing I set on fire at that age, but... Um, yeah, it just—it was just something I had to get through to make Grandma happy, or my aunt happy. But now I was learning a whole new picture. This is God breathed. If it's God breathed, then it's God truth. If it's truth, then I've got to figure out how to deal with it. And there were five key things that came out of this. And, and that that I that was consistent with the with the Reformation, and it was called and, and it's called the five solas. And I had no idea that, that I, I actually put it that way. And somebody thought maybe I was mentioning something out of a cult or something. Um, sola is, is simply Latin for alone or for you know one in a sense. Sola, solus. Okay, so five solas. There were five things where the word alone stood predominant. Scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. That was the, the basis, if you will, of the, of, of the Reformation, those five things in there. Scripture alone, the Bible alone is the source of authority for Christians. Faith alone saves uh, 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 salvation. It's, it's not, faith alone saves, if you will. Uh, faith alone, it, it's not human effort or good deeds. Grace alone, salvation comes by what God has done rather than what we do. We are saved by grace through faith, and that is not even of yourselves, but a what? Gift from God. Christ alone. And in and, and this, it's, it's bigger than you might think. Christ alone in the sense of salvation, yes. But even more, Christ alone in the sense of access to the throne of God. People miss that one a lot. We don't go through a priesthood. We don't go through an uh, an earthly person to contact or come to the throne of God. We go through Christ and Christ alone. And all this is to be done with that idea, whatever you eat, whatever you drink, do all to the what? Glory of God. God. Even on our website, we have the, the five solas there. 
how often I, I, I have said from from the in my ministries, I I one of those things had a dollar every time. How much money would I have? If any part of my salvation is up to me, I'm doomed. If any part is up to me, I'm doomed. God begins it and He will finish it. First uh, Philippians chapter one verse six tells, you know. He has started a good work in us, and He is going to complete it. Not you, not a church group, not a pastor. God is going to complete it. He has taken the responsibility to start and finish what our salvation is. Occasionally, when I'm asked what do I believe, I do get, are you a Calvinist or an Armenian? I tell you, and, and I, I don't take this lightly. I simply just say, no, I'm a Christian. Let me qualify that, though. I want you to understand, no one man's teaching governs my theology. That's part of the restoration movement. No man, one man. You see, the Catholic Church holds the Pope governs everybody's theology. The Restoration Movement pulling away also again, like the Reformation do, that away from that kind of theology and making that statement. No man, no one man is governing my This is what governs my theology. Man, though, I go into this and realize there is so much there. How will I ever get it all? I won't. It's a quest. We are on a quest to know the one true God and He's given us this to do it. And it's got some things that are so absolutely clear, we call them foundational. And we say, this this must be in place for you to say, Christian. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Not just the resurrection, as some people say. The res- I had one pastor, and I know I've shared it with you. The resurrection of his teachings. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christ alone for my salvation. It is finished on the cross. My life is an ongoing work of the Holy Spirit transforming work in me. I subscribe to a still, I, I put it this way, I subscribe to a still growing understanding of what is called the doctrine of grace, which means not that the doctrine of grace is still growing, but that I am still growing in my understanding. Which best explains to me who a sovereign God is. Who has planned the, the saving of His church his bride since before the foundation of the world. Within the framework of that idea of doctrines of grace, man is totally, completely lost. I have no means, absolutely zero means, in which to save myself. I cannot do it. In fact, 
without some impetus coming from God, I'm not going to even want to do it. In fact, without God intervening, it's something that I will choose to ignore. I'm spiritually dead, in other words. My hunger and my thirsts are always after my own desires as one who is totally, completely lost. As, I, as, as one who is spiritually dead, I am un, unable and unwilling to, to save myself. If I'm going to be saved, God must initiate it. Oh, God will complete the work He started. And He initiated this, by the way, before the foundation of the world. Ephesians is very clear about this. I've shared it with you this way. God's plan before the foundation of the world is a symphony about His love for the bride of His Son and about His Son that He has already written. And in the process, all through history, we are playing we are playing out that symphony. We are putting the, the action to it. We are making it complete. We are working out His plan, His will, His purpose. We use the term... Elect, and I, and I know that's one that's difficult for a lot of people. But it's what God has said. He said that He has saved the elect. He has predestined the elect. The elect, by the way, is His church, His bride. Do you, you understand the interchange of those words? His church, His bride. The person whom He is going to interact with internally, He has chosen Himself. Once God has chosen and whatever He has purposed, it will happen. That's what makes Him the sovereign God. That's why I said this is the only way for me to fully grasp the idea. And I, and I, and I said fully, I really mean as much as I fully can. Grasp what it is to know a sovereign God. He is in control. It's His plan, His purpose, His will. His church, His bride, before the creation of the earth until eternal kingdom and all through eternity as well. And so I come back with the conclusion to that part of, of the ideas of, 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 of this doctrines of grace is that what God has started, He will finish. He is going to complete it. Some people, again, have a real struggle with the idea of eternal security. But I am confident with Jesus in John chapter 10 says that none of what God has put with me is going to be taken from me. I rest in that as a truth. And again, simple, simply, Philippians 1.6, He what He has begun, He will complete. Are there other views? Yeah. 
what one would say if you were looking for a technical term, Bob Hapgood is monergistic. Means I believe in 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 God and God alone working out the plan. Are there other people that have different views that can still be Christians and still stand on the same foundation of Jesus Christ, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ? Absolutely, yes. And that's where they, some of why somebody can say, are you Armenian or are you are Calvinist? Uh, and and the idea is that. The other side of monergism is synergism. In other words, somehow I bring something to the table somehow with what God has done. Again, for me, God choosing His bride, the sovereignty of God, His plan, His purpose, His will, I can't see that. But I also realize how easy it is to come to that conclusion. If you take a certain group of Scriptures out and just let them stand by themselves, it seems to say that. Or if you take a certain other group of Scriptures out and let them stand by themselves. And so you have a John Wesley and a Jonathan Edwards at the same time with one a monogist and the other a synergist. Preaching the Gospel in the First Great Awakening and thousands coming to the Lord through both of them. In our statement of faith and in our Bibles, we don't ask anybody to hold to one or the other of those to be a member of our church. I just want you to understand who I am. By the way, this has always been me. I I had one person, uh, uh, I guess it's been several months ago, approach another person, not me, and said, Pastor Bob said something the other day. Is he a Calvinist? And... uh, it was Levi who was asked, and he answered. He says, well, he's more of that doctrines and grace type of thing. And she says, well, that's what a Calvinist is. So, oh, now I understand. I don't know what they understood. <laughs> uh, but this is, is you know, uh, who, I, who I am in the sense of my theology, where I have grown to at this point. Somebody will say, well, which person is saved? Did they confess? their mouth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Do they believe in their heart that Jesus is Lord and that God raised Him from the dead? What does Paul say? Look on the back of your bulletin. You will be saved. For the heart one uh, believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. I appreciate you letting me run over just a little bit. I just didn't want to break this in two. This brings us kind of full circle here. Back to an Antioch moment. RCF's, Redwood Christian Fellowship's Antioch moment. Where are we going? What's coming next? We've got the, we've, we're working through these bylaws, but we're at the, the finishing point. What does this open the door to? And we have to be honest with you, we're sitting here just like other people saying, we're not quite sure what God is going to do with us next. And so we're taking John Piper's advice and Acts chapter 13's advice. And as leaders, we're fasting and praying. Every Thursday right now, we're fasting and praying. We meet early in the morning. And I realized as I was going to say this, that you need to understand fasting and praying always starts with you, yourself. And so for me, you have to get my two things that always bring conviction to me. Psalm 51, created me a new, a clean heart, O Lord. And, and, and Psalm 40, I waited and the Lord heard my cry. My confidence in both of those things, okay? And 
as we meet and pray, these are not business meetings. These are not time for intercessory prayer for the congregation in the sense of sickness and health. This is strictly looking for God's guidance and direction for where he is going to lead us as a congregation. We want to invite you to join us. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not inviting you to come here at 6 o'clock in the morning Thursday. We want to keep the leadership intact with that. But I want to invite you to join us to take Thursdays if you can, or another day if 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 it works, to fast and to pray as well. People say, well, you know, the fasting, one of the things that, you know, you, know, you, hear, you hear that stomach grumbling, and, and the idea is I'm hungry and thirsting after food, but what is it I really want to hunger and thirst after most? The righteousness of God. So uh, some of you, uh, I want to be very cautious as I ask this, please don't go around and ask somebody, are you fasting today? Or if you see someone eating, say, I thought today was the day of fasting. <laughs> you know, uh, it's a private, personal thing, number one. Number two, somebody might be fasting at a different point at a different time. Or some people might be on a, on a very awkward schedule because of medications and diabetes and other things that they can't fast the same way. I want to suggest to you that you can fast other than food. Fast from media, cell phones, television, internet for a day. And other things, other ways to fast. You can be very creative with this. But I, I'm asking you to join us. What do we pray for? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, uh, Paul was praying, and it, started, and it says in verse 9 and 10, that he was praying that, the, that the, the Corinthians would have spiritual wisdom and spiritual understanding. What? For the next step where God would take them to know the will of God. It's the same thing that he prays for the Colossians, that you will know the will of God. I'd ask that you will pray for me as as the pastor teacher here, but to pray for all of the elders, including our elders-to-be that are in training as well, which includes uh, uh, BJ and Alan and Levi, and that that God will, will bring us together in unity and we, that we'll come together in unity and, and maybe that's where God has taken us, a time of maintenance in order to break us loose for whatever He's going to do. I would ask you to pray for my personal health. Um, the last few months I've had more pain than usual. It's skeletal related probably uh, as a result of the scaffolding accident a number of years ago. Uh, but, you know, that's not the only thing in my life that's happened to my body. Um, the, uh, I'm experiencing a lot of pain, uh, fatigue. I call them brain fades, uh, moments of, con- you know, where I, I'm in a conversation with you and all of a sudden I'm in somebody else's conversation. Uh, the, the tests that they've done so far, they're ruling out dementia and, and Alzheimer's, so just letting you know. Um, what was that? Uh, no. Uh, but uh, the, the idea was a, a CAT scan has revealed some possible discoloration, in, in, uh, which means uh, that mostly, basically, it's possibly an inadequate blood supply periodically to the brain. Okay? It turns out that can actually be skeletal because of the damage I've done in, the, in, in those falls, in the discs and stuff like that, and in my neck, especially up here. And so we're trying to get me in for a full body MRI. 
boom, boom, you know, from the tops of my legs to, to my head. And uh, there is a brain in there. The CAT scan does show that. And uh, the difficulty with an MRI is because I have a titanium heart valve, uh, you can't just have a regular MRI. So I may have to go to, to the Bay Area to get an MRI because there's certain adjustments they have to be able to do. And I kind of have to confess I'm a bit of a uh, you know, uh, coward when it comes to that. I, I want somebody who does it every day. The guy at Stanford, they, they have the heart, their, their MRI right there in the heart department. <laughs> he, you know, he's used to pushing those buttons and changing the scale all the time. Um, and then... I was going to say shorter, short attention span, but but you're all going to laugh at that because you know that's true anyway. Um, uh, shorter than normal attention spans, and so the test so far. Let me tell you though, the test so far, my heart is a okay. The left ventricle, which was the birth defect area, uh, is stronger today than it was when I had uh, uh, you know ten years ago. It's actually and it's actually not as enlarged as it was. So that's amazing. So my heart's in good shape. Um, it's the brain that has the question mark. And again, it's the insufficient blood supply is probably there. We're trying to figure those things out. So I would ask that you would pray for me in that specific area of that God would open the doors to get the tests in the right places at the right time so that uh, uh, we can get this all cleared up and, and behind us. So... Uh, I appreciate that, and I hope you, thanks for bearing with me the extra time this morning, because I just didn't feel, find a stopping place, and uh, I want to thank you for that, for that grace. I'd like to have a time of moving into communion, and uh, before I have the ushers come and, and uh, pass the communion out, uh, I'd like to sing Man of Sorrows. Uh, I think we can sing that one a cappella. So... Uh, just uh, meditate if you if you want. Uh, we'll go on the words and we'll probably just sing uh, verses one, two, and uh, we'll just sing the verses. You know me; I have to sing them all. Man of sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood. Sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, spotless Lamb of God was He. Full atonement can it be? Hallelujah, what a Savior! Lifted up was He to die, it was finished was His cry. Now in heaven exalted high, hallelujah, what a Savior. When He comes, our glorious King, all His ransom home to bring, then anew His song will sing, hallelujah, what a 
what a Savior. Hallelujah, what a Savior. The ushers come. Pass the commun- hold the communion until we've all been served. When he comes, our glorious King, all his ransom home to bring, then anew this song we'll sing, Hallelujah, what a Savior. It's the idea that communion is a, a, a multifaceted picture for us. It's a complete picture for us. It shows us that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. The bread represents that. God in the flesh dwelt among us. Okay, And, and in the process of that, giving his body as, as, as a sacrifice for us. And and so we, we take the bread as, as he instructed on the night that he was betrayed. After giving thanks, breaking the bread and giving it to the disciples, he, he said, this is my body broken for you. And he asked as often as we would participate in this together that we do it in remembrance of him. The symbol of his poured out blood is shared with us in the cup that Jesus made that the symbol. He said, this is my blood poured out for you. Purchase the covenant. And the thing that I I, I was thinking about with the verse that was up there was that, you know, that he is coming again. He asked us as often as we would share in this cup, as often as we would do this together, that we would do it together until he comes again. It's tied to that promise. Okay, and so... He asked us as often as we would share this cup, we would do it together in remembrance of him. Father, we thank you so much for your love, your mercy, your grace that you have poured out on us. Lord, we 
we know so clearly that there's nothing that we have done to make us worthy, but it's you and you alone. We rest in the words that is finished with confidence that what you have begun you will complete. And we ask, Lord, that you would go with us with a confidence to be able to not only rest in that grace, but to share that grace with someone else. We worship you and praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.